Hello and welcome to the Echo Podcast by CSE Sock. I'm Subrat and in this episode, Shane and I get to talk to a very special guest, uh, Dr. Gernot Heiser. He is the John Lyons Chair of Operating Systems as well as the lecturer for Advanced OS here at UNSW. We talk about his background and how he got into operating systems, AOS, comparing academia with industry. We talk about his company, Open Kernel Labs, his work on SEL4, and what he's learned from it all. We hope you enjoy. Um, so, Gunnar, we did a, a bit of research into your background. Um, you started off your career studying physics and yeah. then moved on to computer engineering um, before you settled on operating systems. I just wanted to ask you a bit about that journey. Uh, what sparked your interest in physics? Um, what sparked the transition into computer engineering? And then how did you settle on operating systems and microkernels specifically? Right. So this somehow relates to my age, right? When I was a kid, computers, <laughs> I heard about them, but that was about all. Yeah. Um, I was very much into physics from yet age 10, probably. I thought I wanted to be a nuclear physics professor. And oh, cool. <laughs> um, and then I did discover computers. We got our first computer to play with when I was in final year high school. And um, then we got to play with a computer of a local company, IBM Thingo, that was basically meant for um, producing reports um, programmed in a very anal language called RPG2, which was basically for stream processing inputs into outputs. And we programmed mathematical stuff in there. And, and then I, um, in those days, there were very few universities where you could actually study computer science. So that never really ended my thought. So I was I studied physics and then got seriously into computers in first second year, okay. and um, so decided yeah, physics is is cool. It's you learn a lot. You you it helps you to understand a lot of what's going on around you. But computers is exciting in the fact that it's so malleable, right? You you can really do things with computers even in those days, which um, is just unique. So, so the world of software in that sense is very unique. It's it's a universe that's detached from physical constraints and that be that's the basis why it's so incredibly powerful malleable etc <clears throat> okay right so you actually yeah. started programming in high school was when you wrote your first program was yeah, that on basic Visual basic <laughs> okay on punch cards or no no this was a um one of the early um sort of mini computers um or not really mini, it's sort of a, a desktop-y thing, right? It was a, a Wang something. They, they were really the first computers that were sort of mobile in a sense. They could actually haul it around. And we had it, it was given to us on loan for two or four weeks. And um, I had some privileged access to the physics lab where it was kept and we basically spent a lot of time with it then. And, and um, yeah, that's how I got interested. And then during studies, I got more into more into programming and um, went on an exchange program with a Canadian university where they actually did have a computer science program. Oh, okay. And so 
had a lot of background by that time already, and as an exchange student, I could break all the rules. So I just picked all the interesting third and fourth year subjects, and um, by the end of the year, I basically knew as much as a CS graduate. Um, and yeah, I, I knew I wanted to keep on doing that. Um, then I went, I, I was looking actually for a PhD position in computer science. In Canada, this was? or No, this was back, I was looking in Europe. I was looking at Munich, Karlsruhe, and DTH, which were sort of the, the good places. And um, I was lucky enough to get accepted by a professor at ETH, who then half a year later decided to move to the US. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to join him because I just had come back from three years in North America. I wanted to stay in Europe for a bit. And um, went to another guy who was sort of a, uh, an early career researcher in databases. Um, a year later, he had enough and left for industry. <laughs> okay, okay, so these were your PhD supervisors? Yeah, where, um, I was a bit careful losing two of them in a row. And <laughs> okay, we we're going to ask about that, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. That sounded yeah. a little... <laughs> so the first one decided to move to North America. He, he, he was a senior professor and he became uh, chair of the CS department at University of North Carolina. Okay. Um, and yeah, the second one was a more junior who left academia and um, went into industry. And then I ended up in this uh, integrated systems lab, which is part of the EE department, but it was sort of a joint CS EE group. And- um, EE so being electrical engineering. Yes. Mm. And um, well, did my PhD on building device, se semiconductor device simulators, um, of some of the early 3D simulations of um, really the, the low, the lowest, almost lowest level of simulation of silicon. So basically from a doping profile, simulate the, um, how a transistor operates and um, uh, by solving the, the basic semiconductor equations and turned out into lots of, there was a bit of physics in there. It was a lot of numerical analysis in there to understand how to get those algorithms to converge, etc. And um, fair bit of relatively, building relatively large software systems. So it was a bit of everything. Okay, okay interesting. So yeah. just backing up a bit, it sounds like you started off more in hardware or more focused on hardware, like your PhD was a simulator for transistors. Is that... Or, or is that sort of actually? yeah, that, that that's sort of true. Although that's not the part that excited me. The, okay. the part that oh, excited okay. me was the programming, right? Bu building something big. I, I don't know how big that um, thing was. It was all written in Fortran. And unfortunately, I had no choice. I would have preferred C. Um, and it was I don't know, fifty thousand lines of code or so at the end, um, which is sort of keeping working 50,000 lines of Fortran is a big mess of stuff, right? Probably <laughs> difficult to maintain, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. And then when I was finished, I was really trying to get into real computer science mm. and uh, <laughs> for reasons to do with my wife, job opportunities for her, we ended up looking at Sydney and um, I applied to a number of places, got offers from UNSW and Macquarie, went to UNSW um, was lucky enough to get an offer in a CS department, which was what mm. I was really after. I, they were desperate enough in those days. They were massively expanding. They had 
eight or ten positions advertised and a similar number the next year. So UNSW? UNSW Computer Science. So they, they were a bit more, uh, I guess, a bit more flexible on who they were going to hire. And so I got in there and um, then became interested in operating systems. Um, I worked with the photovoltaics people for a while, so the, the PV lab, which is now part of Spree, the School of Photovoltaics. Photovoltaics. Okay, on solar cells, you mentioned, I think. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. So basically, I, I used my knowledge from my PhD to help them model their solar cells better. And one of the challenges there was to scale up the simulations. Before that, I did 3D modeling of single transistors or a pair of transistors, so something of the order of a few micrometers across. Okay. And from the same first principle, solving the semiconductor equation to solve this, uh, scale this up to a solar cell, where in order to get the full, get, get the full model of the cell, you need to model across the distance of two electrodes, which is a few millimeters. So basically, scaling up the size by three orders of magnitude um, mm. that, that was the core challenge and um, we learned a lot from doing that so produced some nice publications but really i was i wanted to do operating systems so um, that was what i started focusing on without an idea of what i was getting into <laughs> i had no clue how hard it would be to sort of start in a different area with no local knowledge, right? There was no active operating systems research at UNSW. There had been strong OS activities decades earlier when John Lyons was around and this was, UNSW was the third place outside the US where Unix was booted. What uh, year was this around? So this was 70, like the Unix story was 76-ish, I think, or so. And, um, this, this led in to the John Lyons commentary of the Unix system, which we have in two weeks' time, a big celebration. Which you'll be speaking at. Oh, yeah. With yes. Some um, other notable computer scientists. Yeah. Should be really exciting. So there was yeah. this history there, and um, UNSW was really well known in the early days of Unix, not necessarily for operating systems research, but certainly for contributing a lot to the general Unix um, uh, ecosystem. And with John Lyons commentary, or were there other activities going on? Well, it was John Lyons and the group of students he had around him. Okay. And, and the, the, the commentary, which I didn't even know about when I started here, um, sort of had a massive impact in the Unix community. Um, but by the time I got there, there was John Lyons was still around. Uh, he was mostly doing networking things and there was not really any OS activity. So, um, I basically bootstrapped that by teaching students to teach me operating systems. And uh, so I, How did you manage that? Yeah, I, I invested heavily into teaching. Huh. And um, the sort of operating systems course I was teaching initially, I wouldn't think much about these days, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting things started. And I managed to collect an army of undergraduate students, um, way over a dozen at some stages. and. Um, they're much faster at learning and I could learn a lot from my students and that's how I got into operating systems. Okay, I'm, I'm sort of wondering though, how did you figure out that that was an area you wanted to go into, operating systems? Uh, it was always, ever since I had the f 
actually took an OS course in my time in Canada. I thought this is cool stuff and I really, it, it interested me. It was sort of definitely one of the things that interested me most in operating systems. I think compilers I've thought was cool as well, but um, yeah, OS. And, um, and I was, once I first touched the Unix system, um, having played with mainframe operating systems and VMS, the VAX operating system before. Um, it, it was um, a, a few weeks of heavy swearing, uh, but then I got the hang of it. And, oh, this is awesome. And uh, <laughs> sort of the the power you have in, in, in a Unix system was not comparable to anything before I had experienced. So this, I just got interest in this thing and it really, um, caught on with me and uh, I, I really wanted to work in this space. And that was, when was that? When you arrived at UNSW, what year was that? Around? Yeah, so I arrived here in 91 and there was a few people around talking about distributed operating systems, etc. Um, didn't go too far. Um, and then I basically really started getting serious about it at about 94. We had won an ARC grant, which is sort of a pretty prestigious thing and I didn't quite know what to do with it. And <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I basically said, okay, we, we have to bootstrap the skill base. And um, this was by this interaction between me and my students, basically. So the grant was for money to make a course for operating systems? No, no, for, 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 for operating system research, for, okay, for right. building what later became the Mumi single address space operating system. Right. Ah. So this was triggered by the advent of 64-bit hardware, whereas until then, computers were always limited by address space bits. Yeah. Right. First you had 16-bit address spaces, and then you had 32, and when the first 32-bit address space were run, people thought they were infinite. And um, why would you ever deallocate de something? <laughs> You've got four megabytes, or uh, gigabytes, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, ran to its limit very quickly. Um, but 64-bit is a real, that, that's a huge change, right? You, you can't fill up. That will truly never run out. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say never, mm. but I mean, it's a virtual address space. We, we still haven't even reached, we're still far away from the limits of that, right? The yeah. hardware at the moment, at most, supports something like 52 bits actually usable in the 64-bit address space. So it's huge and you can do things differently. And so the thought was, well, why can we, why do we need to have all this um, remapping of addresses, etc.? The, the address space is big enough, just keep all the data in there at a fixed address. Everything is at the fixed address in the yeah. virtual address space. And rather than every process having its own version of the mapping from physical to, from virtual to physical, you have a common mapping and the only difference between processes is what part of the mapping they have access to. Right. So you have mm. this complete address space and everyone has a partial view of it, but they agree on the addresses. And that means you can have persistent data structures with pointers in there because the pointers are no longer tied to particular address space. They are globally valid within the system. So you don't need this conversion when you have a, a tree data structure or something like that. You can just dump it to disk as is because it will always come back at the same virtual address, even if it's read by someone else. And therefore, the pointers are valid without any conversion. Okay. okay. So that was yeah. the basic idea behind this Mumi system. 
So it seems like you and many other of the early computer scientists started off um, at, I guess, like lower levels of abstraction, maybe physics or hardware. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that there is a benefit for programmers to um, understand what's going on underneath the abstractions that they'll typically work with? For instance, maybe a user space application programmer. Um, my guess is you would you'd think it's probably beneficial for them to understand bits of the operating system. Is it beneficial for operating system programmers to understand the hardware um, and so on? Yeah. Uh, what are your sure. thoughts on that? Um, well, I mean, this is always a, a question of, of abstractions. And abstractions hide things, and that's intentional, right? They, they hide things to simplify things and simplify okay. reasoning about them and having not to worry about unnecessary detail. Um, but by hiding things, you also lose things. And so virtual addresses are a good example, right? Um, just having to deal with the virtual address space when you have this illusion of your program as a universe is a very powerful abstraction. But if you use it carelessly and don't understand what's going on underneath, you can end up with horrible performance, right? If you um, have yeah, completely correct. random access data access patterns, then your TLB will thrash and your performance suffers. If you understand the next layer behind, below it, the operating system, then yes, you understand that this is not something you should be doing and it, you understand how you should be accessing data to get the best performance out of the hardware. Um, so understanding at least one level of abstraction below is always really good and in many cases necessary. And so for operating systems, it's if you're worried about performance, which you always should, then you clearly need to understand the hardware because otherwise um, you, the abstraction, the ISA hides too much from you so to um, understand how you get good performance out of the system. So you need to understand pipelining and those things. Right? Um, so understanding at least one level below is always really helpful and as I say in many cases essential. Um, and, but it has other benefits too. Um, for example, a few years ago, I did work in energy power management and I found a lot of the literature work was crap because people used a old model of hardware, basically that the power draw of a CMOS circuit is proportional to the frequency, the clock frequency. Okay, what's a CMOS circuit? Uh, Complementary metal oxide semiconductor, so the, oh, the silicon. Right, one of those. Of course. Course. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, totally familiar. S silicon technology that's uh, pretty dominant these days. Okay. okay. Um, so yeah, there, there's this old model which um, a very smart guy called Mark Weiser had put up in the 90s, and it was a really good model in those days because silicon or CMOS power draw was dominated by the switching power and there was very little leakage power. So if the circuit, the way CMOS works is you have a pair of transistors, one is conducting and the other is blocked okay. and they are in series. So in a stationary state, there's almost no current and therefore no power draw um, because always one of the transistors is off. Whereas when you switch, then there's a period where both, consistor, both transistors are partially conducting and there is a power a current flowing through the pair, and that's where you get a power draw. So at first approximation, you got zero power when the thing is not doing anything, and you get power when it's switching. And because the switching happens at the clock speed, 
um, the first order model is that the power draw is proportional to the clock frequency. Okay. And if you have that, then okay, you can reduce power by um, slowing things down, etc. So this is a model that was put up in the 90s and was pretty accurately described power consumption in CMOS circuits in those days. Problem was people were still using it 20 years later. With different C hardware. Huh. When CMOS was completely different, where these days CMOS circuits are dominated by leakage power. So that the leakage power is actually higher than the switching power and therefore this model completely goes out of the window. You can have a, a very significant consistent power draw, static power draw that's independent of the clock frequency, like doesn't scale when you scale down the clock frequency. So that means power management is a completely different ballgame. And if you don't understand that, you can do all sorts of nice models and get beautiful results which are utterly useless because they don't correspond to reality. And the annoying thing mm -hmm. is these were done by people who just like to play with models and no one bothered to put a power meter to a circuit, right? <laughs> See whether yeah. what they predicted had any relevance and it had not. Um, so this is where sort of understanding a bit about the, the physics behind it mm -hmm. is, really, yeah, is really helpful, yeah. And um, killed a lot of research projects on the way. Uh, <laughs> Probably rightly so, yeah. I imagine. And, and produced a paper that's very highly cited where we actually measured power draw in a uh, in a smartphone uh, and then for many years everyone doing energy management on phones or similar devices was citing it but. um i guess just learning about um what's happening one layer deep mm -hmm. is pretty important so uh that, that begs the question because at unsw uh, if you do computer science uh you don't have to learn about os you can just graduate without it yeah um, do you think that should be compulsory then? Um, it's a good question and I've always been in sort of two minds about it. Yeah. Um, I prefer students to take operating systems because they're interested in operating systems. Um, and reality is if you're into HCI or algorithms also, the OS is not that important. Yeah, that's right. right. So it's again, the question is where on the, abs on the abstraction stack you live. If you're pretty high, yeah. the OS may be three levels below and of not much relevance. Oh, okay. um, computer engineers, of course, they much more tend to be doing things much more low level low and level. it makes sense that they need to understand operating systems. So my personal view, of course, it's be very beneficial for everyone to understand, have at least a basic understanding of yeah. operating systems, but it's probably correct that um, it's not mandatory for computer science okay. and software engineering. Yeah, because when I did it, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on that I had no idea about. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I thought that would be pretty helpful for just yeah, application I mean, developers to be. Getting to a poke in what's below is always gives you a lot of insight. Yeah. I think that's a general rule. Right? Yeah. All right. Um, so it looks like uh, from, from um, our background research on you, you've done a lot of industry as well as like academia. Yeah. What do you what do you reckon the differences are? What do you what do you think? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, I think one answer is that industry, if you want to achieve real world impact, you need industry. Yeah, you yeah. either do it yourself or you work with them. Yeah. and I want to do stuff that has an impact in the real world. So for okay. me, industry is essential. Um, right. And this is why I had a startup in the past as well, because just to get the help the technology get out. Um, the other thing is that in industry, for the same reason, in industry you, you're working on something that actually will turn into a product, right? Which is yeah. satisfying in a way. Mm. But the drawback of that is inherently short term. Yeah. 
um, in industry, if you're lucky, you get into a project that runs for development that runs for a few years. These are rare these days, right? It yeah. tends to be way more short term. Whereas in academia, you can take a long term view and you can tackle a real big problems. Right? Yeah. In industry tackles the problems on the of the day with a very few exceptions. And there are some luminaries um, like Elon Musk who sort of looks further and sort of disrupts the whole system. Yeah. With, but by doing things which can be turned into impact relatively quickly, right? Um, but in industry, that that's an exception. Yeah. Whereas in academia, you really have the luxury and in my eyes, the obligation to look further. And Hmm. It, the, it's sort of one of the differences between a, a good and a second-class academic is actually targeting real problems fundamentally, sort of taking a, a longer-term view at this is a problem that will take a long time to solve and it needs a lot of intermediate steps and having an intuition of how to do that. Yeah. Um, it's almost impossible to do that in industry, but in in academia, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Not everyone does it, mm -hmm. but you're supposed to. And then, of course, if you're lucky, you can do the whole way, which I was lucky in a few cases to do so of really sort of tackling fundamental problems with a fairly long time horizon. But then in the end, when they when we solve them, starting to get them out into the real world. Yeah. So. This is why collaborating with industry then is, of course, very helpful. It also, it's also very helpful to really understand what the problems are. Mm. I, I had uh, misconceptions about what's worth doing and what's not worth doing. Mm. And um, working, having my startup and otherwise working with people in industry uh, really helps you to understand the difference between problems that are worth solving and are not worth solving or problems that are trivial to solve versus problems that require really a lot of research to solve. Yeah. Um, and of course, by tackling those is how you really make impact. Yeah, so I've, I guess. I've got to jump in here. I want to dive a bit deeper into the, the startup, which which we also did some research on, but I've got to ask first, um, you brought up Elon Musk. He's sometimes seen as a bit of a polarizing figure. Are you a fan of Elon Musk? Do you think he's... His mission is worthwhile or is it misguided? I don't I don't have a strong opinion on that. Okay. Um, he's certainly got his good and his bad sides and yeah. certainly does a lot of things and says a lot of things which I violently disagree with. Um, on the other hand, he is just a, I mean, he is really changing the game in many ways. And um, uh, certainly what he did to electric cars, right? It's a completely rethinking and revamping of the industry and um, by basically stepping out of the box. And this yeah. is something I definitely admire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's he's got great achievements, um, even though I may not necessarily be, I, I wouldn't consider myself a fan of it, but okay, he's, he's right. definitely got done a few things right. Yeah, <laughs> it's just undeniable how much change he's actually yeah. brought through. He's yeah, been exactly. able to. And, you and don't have to agree with everything. A lot of changes for the better, right? So yeah, that's right, yeah. So right, you, you brought up your startup and your industry experience um, we should mention, so in 2006, you founded this company called Open Kernel Labs, mm -hmm. um, and it was eventually acquired by the U.S. defense giant, I think they called General Dynamics. Yep. Um, could you talk a bit about the story behind Open Kernel Labs um, and also this eventual acquisition? We saw that um, Open Kernel Labs, I believe they've got a, an L4 microkernel, and we, we should discuss what exactly that is. 
Um, but they've got a microkernel or a very small operating system actually running on some iPhone devices, or it certainly was. Um, yeah, it still is, um, as far as I know. So, OK Labs was basically a, a an attempt to commercialize our research. So we've been, in the context of the Mungi project, I got into microkernels. I met Jochen Liedke in 94, who is the father of the L4 microkernels, and we did our own implementation. And Kevin, who you know, yes. teaching operating system, he was my student at the time, and he built the first 64-bit version of L4 on the MIPS R4K processor at the time. And that also led to the advanced operating systems course. And so we we had our own L4 kernels and we worked with the uh, group at Karlsruhe where Jochen Liedke moved to after his time at IBM and then he tragically passed away in 2001. Um, and his, his student then completed the, the first really portable version of L4 called the pistachio kernel, which we then adopted. We we definitely didn't have a not invented here syndrome. We had our own kernel in which we had invested a lot, but there was it was obvious that this was the better technology, ah. uh, so we adopted that. And so sorry to interrupt, but I'm scared a lot of uh, the listeners might not be aware. What is a micro kernel? What is an L4 kernel? Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe it might be helpful. Liebke had that nice adage about what belongs in a micro kernel and what yeah. doesn't. So, you can so a, a micro kernel is, in a way, the irreducible core of an operating system. Okay. So a CPU uh, driver, I think it's been called. <laughs> oh, yes, a, that was one of, other one of my students who invented that term. Um, yeah, so an operating system has lots of services. It consists uh, mainstream operating systems in tens of millions of lines of code. Um, some of that runs in privilege mode, others not. And um, privilege mode, of course, is where you can do everything and where there's no barriers stopping you doing something wrong. And so that's the dangerous mode, right? And if you have millions of lines of code, there's thousands of bugs and lots yeah. of opportunities to doing something wrong. And the, the core idea of the microkernel, which goes back to the 70s actually, is to really shrink this dangerous code to the minimum. And Jochen Liedke's definition of a microkernel is any functionality that um, can be implemented at user level should not be in the kernel. And so only what's ah. really left is the kernel, and you can reduce it down to all the 10,000 lines of code. And um, that means everything else, including all the operating system services, they run as normal processes protected from each other and you get automatic fault containment. So a uh, key to really much improved stability and possibly security and all that stuff. So that's the, base, the basic theory. Um, people got really excited about microkernels in the 80s. Um, everyone was building them. Mm. Uh, and then they found that they all sucked, their performance was bad, they tried to build systems on top which were really unusable. And so by the early 90s, they had got a really bad name and you couldn't, we couldn't publish papers with the, the term microkernel in the title or the abstract. Was that a performance they, they couldn't achieve? Yeah, they, they basically got a bad name because they, they, get, they had bad performance. And then Jochen Liedke did this new microkernel called L4, L4 because it was a successor of L3, and L3 was Jochen's Liedke's third system. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he had, before that, he had done a, a compiler for a language called Elan, which was a sort of a 
high level language that never got very far and he had written another operating system called Eumel which is sort of a funny German character and so then he did this new thing called and he called it L3 the third system and then when he did the completely fresh approach of that as it w L3 was sort of a microkernel and as per performing as badly as all the others and then he sort of basically stepped back said okay this is not going to lead anywhere we need a radical new approach really do a proper microkernel really just put very little in the kernel and really think very carefully about the abstractions what what abstractions do you really need how to make them minimal but yet powerful and implement them as efficiently as possible so that that was the core idea of l4 which he did in 95 some of the design was actually done here he was visiting a few times and he did a lot of the final finalizing the api spec uh, in one of these visits vk was yes oh cool and um, so it became came out as l4 in about 95 and this is when we started adopting it and implementing it on the maps and um so how did we get here i derailed you a bit so we were talking uh, about the, open kernel yeah. labs yes yeah. so yeah. then in um not oh two oh three this new organization called NICTA was created, um, federal government funded research organization where I got, was one of the early program leaders. So I got in charge of a pretty sizable group and um, doing operating systems for embedded systems basically. And so um, the whole theme of NICTA was ubiquitous computing, um, embedded systems and all that. So microkernel technology seemed to be particularly well suited for this for several reasons like being small those days embedded systems tended to be very resource constrained much le less than they are these days i mean these days uh, my phone has more power than my sun desktop used to have <laughs> when i had one of the biggest machines <laughs> in cse um whereas in in the um, around the turn of the century, embedded systems were still very resource constrained. So a microkernel is obviously a good step there. Mm -hmm. But also, there was much less standardization, right? We we tried to build mainstream, like general purpose operating systems. Mungi was supposed to be a general purpose system. It's obvious you can't change that, right? There's, there's, it's Windows and um, Unix of sorts systems, and that's not going to change uh, whereas in the embedded space, there was this transition happening. So th this was, if you like, one of the core insights that embedded systems were in those days pretty much dominated by microcontrollers without memory protection, single mode execution. So they didn't have this kernel user uh, distinction and no protection. And so everything flat address space, etc. And it was and, and they were becoming more and more complex. And it was obvious to me at the time that this old model would be reaching its use by date. Eventually, the software complexity um, would outgrow the technology on which it was built. The old model of just running directly on the hardware? Yes, yeah. with, with, without, without any protection. protection right? yeah. So any bug would kill the system and you, it'd be very hard to trace, etc. Could you explain embedded, embedded systems for those that aren't familiar with the term? So an embedded system is something that um, is not primarily a, a computer, 
but contains a computer inside, which these days is, of course, almost everything, right? So, like, <laughs> IoT devices would all be yeah. considered they're, they're embedded, all embedded systems. systems. Like a microwave yeah. chip or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, as I said, these days you can't buy any anything that's sort of more than a shovel that isn't an embedded system because right. they all have microprocessors in there. That, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. They were... Um, still a bit more um, more niche things, um, but they were they were becoming much more ubiquitous, mm -hmm. and they they're becoming much more functional. And of course, that was the driver for complexity, which I thought would be not manageable if you don't have protection. And um, this was actually then just happening with mobile phones. So mobile phones in those days, this was when the first smartphones were starting to pop up they were also built on this flat model. So you might have apps, but they were just programs that run at the same level as everything else. And of course, any bug in any of these apps would kill the Crash system. The um, so that was a strong driver for changing the technology. And it was basically the right time to get in with new operating system technology, which is sort of a unique opportunity in a way. So this is what we were aiming for. Um, Turns out it actually happened. I was sort of stunned when my prediction came <laughs> true. <laughs> within what a actually time. happened? Well, people actually, particular phone makers, looking for different OS technologies. So Qualcomm, they were already then the leading manufacturers of mobile phone chips. Um, originally, they had one processor which ran everything, so the communication stack as well mm -hmm. as their little application interface. And yes, they, they wanted to keep apps away from their modem stack. Understandably. Understandably, yes. So they had their own embedded OS, like flat address space, no protection, like everything else. And they tried to retrofit protection into it. And um, it, it was apparently a big train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> and some people inside the company thought this would be a train wreck and started looking for plans B. Mm. and. Uh, we had open sourced our OS work, so our L4 embedded microkernel was open sourced on a BSD license. They came across that. Um, they told me later we were plan B2. I never found out what BA B1 was, but <laughs> in the end, they um, yeah, they decided to adopt our kernel as the basis of their operating their phone operating system and. Um, it was went all very quickly. I one day I, I'm in the office. It was April May April May two thousand and four. Phone rings. Hello, I'm an IP lawyer from Qualcomm, <laughs> <laughs> and that normally sends shivers down your spine because Qualcomm is is known as suing everyone. They, oh, they, really? Yes. Oh. Um, but turns out they weren't about to sue us and they wanted to understand the exact licensing condition of our kernel. And um, they, I was, he's, the guy seemed to be happy with what I told him. And uh, I went out to the lab, so I just got this call from Qualcomm and I said, yeah, there was this guy hanging out on the mailing list asking pretty um, informed questions. <laughs> they were, had been looking at it for a while. Some of the Qualcomm engineers? Yes. Okay. And I had a trip to the US scheduled a few weeks later and so I did a detour via um, San Diego, um, got an NDA in place in record time. Um, and then in June, I was there in San Diego, spent a day with them, having great fun talking technology. 
Who and had to sign the NDA? You or Qualcomm? Well, it's, there was this NDA between Qualcomm and, and us at Nikta. Okay. So they wanted an NDA, which is the typical process. And, to uh, make sure that you don't speak about so so they so we ca they can or? they can talk openly about technical questions and um, I'm I sign that I'm not talking about it outside sort of thing. Wasn't it open source though? The our kernel was, but what they wanted to do. Oh like, right. So okay. it's it's, a TV, it's virtually whenever you get talking to industry after the first meeting you you exchange NDAs. That that's pretty standard. Okay. Um, and yes, so. Four weeks later, or six weeks, I was there, um, and two months later, we flew out. My student Benno and I for a three-day course for um, Qualcomm engineers and some of their customers, uh, talking about our L4 microkernel and what you can do with it. And um, then it took. This was then when we seriously started thinking about the company. And uh, they, they had this, Nikta had this entrepreneur and residence guy who was keen to um, create a startup. Oh, so this was before Open Kernel Labs. This was in Nikta. This was in Nikta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Open Kernel Labs basically came out of that. Um, I, Steve really was keen to do a startup. I didn't, I wasn't keen initially because I thought you couldn't make money with operating systems. Um, in hindsight, I was right, but um, I drank the Kool-Aid and um, tried it anyway. And so we we created this company in 2016. It was registered in August. Um, 2016 or 2006? Sorry, 2006. And turns out we didn't know it at that time, but around that time, Qualcomm was already shipping phones with our kernel in there. Notably iPhone. No, this was, so th this was, um, iPhone didn't exist in those days. It was before the iPhone, it came out a few years later. Um, but uh, they started shipping on some of their phones in Japan. So Qualcomm wasn't actually a phone maker, but they provided the chips. Yeah. To the go chips, in the yes. Mobiles. And sort of the first phones with L4 on them started shipping in the second half of um, 2006 in Japan. And um, yeah, we, this was in parallel when we were already starting on SEL4. We, we were already working on the SEL4. In, mm, we've got to get to SEL4. Yeah, we need to get to that. Yes. Um, so it was all a bit, in hindsight, it was the wrong startup, right? What, there was clear potential for a servicing kind of company around this technology but not an IP company, which is sort of what investors want to see, something that has exponential growth, et cetera, mm. becomes a billion dollar company, et cetera. What are patents? Is that what investors like? They like patents, which are sort of crap in this space anyway. Um, but yeah, they, they want to have IP, which you can license. And um, I, I didn't think rightly that um, you couldn't really make money out of licensing of this thing. Mm. Um, you could have potentially with SEL4. So in hindsight, the correct way to do it would have been get my students set up a company for servicing the L4 embedded business and we focus on SEL4 and then maybe take that one out into a company that actually has valuable IP and can grow. Um, 
we didn't do it this way for a number of reasons, including there was a lot of pressure in getting started up quickly because Nikta wanted runs on the board, etc. And um, Steve was a pretty screwed negotiator and sort of lumped all that in and basically got to own SEO4 even before it was done. Steve and was your so co-founder for yes, OpenCurnal yeah, Labs? Yes, he was. Where did you meet? Was he at NICTA at the time? Yeah, he was recruited into NICTA as an entrepreneur in residence. They oh, right, you said that. Basically, mm, right. their job was to create startups. Um, uh, it wasn't a very happy relationship. I've got a whole series of blogs, if oh. you're interested. <laughs> there's, there's about, a, I don't know, six or ten a series of blogs uh, on the OK Labs story. We'll let everyone know. So your blog's microkernel, dude. Is it a WordPress? It's WordPress. Okay, yeah, you should be able to find it fairly e easily, Gunnar's blogs. Yeah. Um, but sorry, just before, I'm kind of curious. You said um, operating systems you can't really make a lot of money out of, but I would have imagined, I mean, the Open Kernel Labs uh, was acquired by a pretty large company. I would have thought that. Yes, but they didn't tell you what it was acquired for, right? No, they didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not publicly. I, 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 I made zero money out of it. Was that because of the way the licensing was? Uh, like uh, it, it was in the on? end of fire sale. We were running out of money. Okay. And Sorry, the end of what? It was a, a fire sale. Oh, a fire sale. Okay, yeah, right. We, we were running out of money and um, needed a buyer. Otherwise, we would have had to fold the company. And... Um, the, I mean, OK Labs had awesome engineers. Like, they, we, we had really, at engineering level, we had about 20 engineers or so, and they were really awesome. A lot, former, a lot of them were former students of yours. Almost at, all, yes. Yeah, okay, right. Um, they, always, they almost all came through the 3231 AOS pipeline at UNSW, oh, okay. um, did their thesis, uh, and then went into the company. And, um, but we had clueless management, and that includes myself. <laughs> and um, also some people with serious ethics problems. And uh, so that was what I really hated about the company. And um, but it there was a real benefit from it in that it really got us on the map. OK Labs became pretty well known and sort of the fact that we got our OS into Qualcomm and later I, um, iPhones. Mm. So Apple adopted a different branch of our embedded L4 microkernel um, a few years later. And so it's still, as far as I know, still shipping on the secure enclave of all iOS devices. For transaction processing, I think, on the Apple phones, right? Yeah, so all, all the security-related stuff, okay. so the, the fingerprinting and um, key management and et cetera, it's all done in the uh, secure enclave. And, so um, what is the secure enclave? So this is a um, mode of the processor where you have a particular restricted mode where you have more access than normally. So it's, it's um, I don't know exactly how this operates, whether it's, the same as the trust zone technology. It may or may not be the case because they started doing this before mm -hmm. um, the trust zone. Um, but in, in the case of trust zone, it's sort of an orthogonal mode to use a kernel where in the no what they call normal world, you have only access to certain devices and certain parts of physical memory, whereas in the secure world, in the secure enclave, you have full access. Okay. And so you run critical operations in there and so normal apps have sort of a, an, an additional border to get in there even if you 
can compromise your operating system. Okay. If you have a, a secure operating system like SEL4, you don't need any of this crap because mm. you can't compromise it. But if you, if you run iOS or Windows or Android Linux, of course, you have a system full of holes. And um, so you have to assume it gets compromised. So people create mm -hmm. this separate protected hardware enclave for these critical operations. Yeah. And this is where they running as your uh, our earlier L4 kernel as an operating system. If well, anyone's familiar with Intel's rings of protection, I think it's probably similar to that, right? The secure enclave? No, it's it's orthogonal. Okay. So in, in Intel, you have ring zero to three when course in reality you only re use ring zero for the kernel and three for applications um, on arm you have user kernel um, now hypervisor and then underneath this um, uh, monitor mode and then you have an orthogonal bit that tells you whether you're in normal world or in secure world so in, in both you have user and kernel mode okay right no that's what you mean by orthogonal Okay, well, we should talk about the um, elephant in the room, um, <laughs> which is SEL4. We're both wearing T-shirts brandishing the logo. Yeah. Oops, so sorry. what is the SEL4? And you mentioned it can't be compromised. So a few, okay. yeah. Yeah, so this all, again, goes back to the early days of Nikta, where um, we had lots of resources. I actually had lots of money uh, to hire people. And but with a clear expectation of doing really earth-shaking stuff, mm -hmm. right? So basically, think big and do something you couldn't do in any other place. And um, the suggestion originally actually came from Rob van der Meiden, um, although I was pretty skeptical. Is okay? Can we verify an operating system? Who is Rob van der? He's a professor here. Oh, okay. Ron, Ron sorry, Ron, not Rob. In ver verification. Yeah, he's a formal method. Okay, guy. right. Yeah. So he was in Nikta's. So the idea of, okay, we have a microkernel. It's small enough that you can probably get it bug-free. Can you actually prove it bug-free? Mm -hmm. And sort of proving software has certain characteristics that's called formal methods. So applying mathematical techniques to, to software. Ah. And so the idea is, okay, is this thing small enough that you can verify it? I was very skeptical because similar to microkernel and AI, um, formal methods had over-promised and under-delivered. Ah. So in the... 80s, 90s, formal methods, particularly in the defense space, were very popular. People were trying to verify stuff. And they never got beyond toy problems. Mm. And so when the suggestion came in about 03, 04, verifying kernel, I was really skeptical because I, I didn't want to get into a debacle. Um, but the, there were some reasons why, okay, you should actually try it. Like, not not start a big project right away, but um, carefully evaluate whether it's actually possible. Um, and the lucky thing that also happened is they hired Gavin Klein, who just did his PhD in Munich, TU Munich, in the group that is doing the Isabel theorem prover. So this is one of the tools for doing formal verification. It's an interactive t theorem prover where basically, which knows about mathematical logic and you can to um, write specifications and formulate um, theorems and then prove them. And it's doing this in an interactive way where basically the engineer is is basically writing the proofs, mm -hmm. say, okay, 
use this step to prove that step, etc., until you finally prove the lemma. It has some automations or some of the things it can do automatically, but it's it's a largely um, human-driven process. Um, but the nice thing is the theorem prover doesn't let you do any incorrect proofs, right? It will only accept a step if it can satisfy it according to it, the logic that's mm -hmm. um, implemented in it. And so th this is the tool that we used, and we just hired an expert from there. and um, Which is Gerwin. It, which is Gerwin. And he's also a lecturer at UNSW. Teaches he's he's a conjoint professor, yeah. Okay. And um, so my main concern was we do some verification thing, write a lot of paper, but it's useless in practice, right? This is not what I want. I want to do things that are useful for the real world. And so I wasn't interested in verifying a toy. I wanted to verify a real microkernel. And I was really, really concerned whether the formal methods mm -hmm. people would be would able to get them to the point where they actually focus on doing something practical as opposed to just doing something that produces papers. And Gavin, I got, I really, build up a lot of confidence with him. It helped that he was running Linux on his laptop. Uh, so he, he, he sort of- Sent a good signal to you. <laughs> he, he understood enough about computers. So it wasn't uh, the mathematician living in hyperspace kind of type, right? Right, okay. Um, so that, that was uh, an important point that I had the confidence that, okay, this guy probably gets what it means for doing something real. And um, I still wanted at least one person to understand both sides. So I gave my star student, Harvey Tuch, um, who had just blitzed AOS. Um, he had done the original port of our kernel to the ARM architecture, so he knew the kernel inside out. Okay, wow. He had a, a strong math aptitude. And so basically I handed him over to Gavin to brainwash him for a year with formal methods. As and an honest student, was he, was he a still student at that time, Harvey? No, he was just, he was first year PhD at the time. Okay, right. Okay. Um, or maybe he was, um, I, when I had money, I always tried to hire people as sort of research assistants for a year before they start PhD, just to give them more time. He might have been in that phase. Okay. Um, but he had done his, he finished his honors already. And um, yeah, he worked with Gavin for a year and they did a pilot project where they, formalized a small part of the kernel API and then tried to verify that down all the way to C. And so they mostly worked and basically this was to, to learn what techniques work and how do you approach the full project. And then after this worked, then I was confident that I could trust Harvey to keep the formal methods people honest. Mm -hmm. um, we then embarked on the full project, which originally was supposed to run for three years. It took four and a half years giving that it's such a high risk thing, that's not too bad, better than most defense projects. And um, it was, yeah, we, we one of the things we learned from the pilot project, it's hopeless trying to verify existing code that's been, not been written for verification. So um, oh. we thought we'd had to do one from scratch. We also learned a lot about things that were do done right and wrong in earlier kernels. So we thought it's time to do to re revamp the whole kernel API anyway. And so Ker Kevin was driving this part. So he, w he was basically the, the main designer of SEO4. And um, we had this 
very tight interaction where we sort of um, iterated quickly around the API with um, to test out what the formal methods people thought they could formalize and verify versus what the systems people thought would in the end give us good performance. Mm. And um, also we were playing, we provide a new resource management model so that a lot of experimentation was necessary for that. So the kernel was developed in parallel with the verification. And um, still is today, right? I mean, that's it, very much part of the SEL4 story that the proof engineers and the systems team um, work very closely and also will kind of implement the, the kernel yep. together. Like you said, it wouldn't have worked if you had a kernel already and you tried correct. to verify yep. it. No, it was totally key part of the success that we had this very tight integration and in the sense of sitting around the same desks between systems people and verifiers and with a lot of feedback um, uh, and yeah, a lot of communication. And that really set us apart from other projects attempting similar things. Mm. People tried to verify operating systems since the 70s. They didn't really get much beyond specifying something or doing some verification of some models, etc. Um, there was a huge project in Germany around the same time trying to produce a verified OS. Um, they Did had Liebke ever talk about a verified kernel? Um, not really. I mean, Jochen thought a lot in terms of invariance, etc. So it would not have been a big step, and he would. I think he would have naturally got there, had he not passed away too early. Um, I think he would done it. He would have done it probably first, um, but he was dead by then. And um, yeah, we um, there was a, a separate project in Germany. They they were more ambitious. They tried to do the full stack like process or kernel, compiler, everything. Um, they never finished uh, verifying their kernel, even though it was a complete toy um, compared to ours, which was really built for the real world. And um, yeah, we finally did it in 2009. It created huge waves around the community. Um, it really changed the community. Like formal methods didn't exist in the system community before with very few exceptions. There's very rare papers where people had used some formalism. Um, within a few years, every main conference has now several sessions on formal verifications. There's plenty of verification work. And we basically get credited for getting that started. It's basically by showing that, yes, time is ripe. You can actually apply these formal verification techniques to real software. And um, so SEO4 was the first thing it did that did that. It was considered the second biggest proof ever done at the time. The first being what? Um, some mathematical thing. I don't even remember which one it was. Um, not, nothing in computer science, but okay. pure, pure math. Um, but also it very quickly became the biggest and by still, as far as I know, still is by probably an order of magnitude the biggest proof base that's been maintained over an evolu evolving software artifact. The, the kernel changed completely in the, what is it, 12 years since. Um, probably 80% of the code has changed. The API has evolved a fair bit and we carried the proofs with it. And they grown, at the time it was 200,000 lines of proof script. 
which obviously would be pretty useless if it was just handwritten pen yeah. and paper stuff. It would be as more buggy than the code. Yeah. It only makes sense in this theorem prover that doesn't accept incorrect proofs. And by now our proof base is well over a million lines. And that's kind of interesting. So just to give people an idea, that's with a, a 10,000, around 10,000 lines of code for the, the kernel itself. Yep. Requires 200,000 lines of proof. Yep. So more than an order of magnitude yeah. for the proofs. Which is and and this is, we see this ratio pretty much everywhere. You, you would get a smaller ratio with a more high level language because in, in C you have to prove a lot of things which you normally get for free from the type system. Um, and in terms of developing application code, I think it's stupid to write application code in C. You should use a safer language. For the kernel, it's the right tool because you, it's basically glorified assembler, right? You want to know exactly how what you write maps to hardware. Otherwise, you can't get the, um, the performance. You need to under interface directly with hardware anyway, etc. So C is the right tool for that, but it shouldn't be used for high up things. But I think even for more high level languages, you will probably see a factor of five to 10 still between lines of proof and lines of code. So while verifying a, like a, um, a C program, wouldn't you have to also verify what's compiling it? Because I'm sure that that's what goes into the so system. If, if you want complete assurance, yes. Um, if As long as you verify the C code, you know that you haven't introduced any bugs, yeah. but you may have a buggy compiler, or yeah. if you're worried about security, you might have a Trojan in your compiler. Um, there's a famous Turing Award lecture by um, Ken Thompson, one of yeah. the Unix co-inventors, who talks exactly about that, how you can build a Trojan into the compiler so it will you can eliminate it from the source code. Uh, the compiler will always compile the Trojan back in there. Um, so that's a real risk, particularly in the security critical domain. Um, and so people, there, there's what's called certifying compilers, which give you a proof that the code corresponds to C code. Um, the best mm. known one is um, um, CompCert, which was done at INRIA in France at about the same time as SEO4. And we use that for SEO4, but um, it's, CompCert, at least in those days, was more optimized for like compiling spec programs and getting good performance as opposed to compiling systems code. So we got a pretty significant performance impact from CompCert. Uh, but also, as people tell me who are using CompCert, industry doesn't like this. They, they like standard compilers. They want to use GCC. Mm. So our approach then was to do a separate translation validation. So we have a tool chain that reads that processes the C code, not the actual C source, but the formalized C, which is what we actually verify, and use the formal formalization of the ISA, the instruction set architecture, and thereby formalizing the binary code and then proving that the two are have the same semantics. Oh, so you just meet and in the middle. Uh, yep. yep. And so we uh, we we use standard GCC, but mm. we don't have to trust it. It's outside the trusted computing base, which oh. is really cool. Yep. And that, that part is an automated tool chain. So you push the button and it runs for half a day and then it says yes. <laughs> okay, Hopefully. so I think you mentioned this abstract specification. It's not the actual C source code that's being proved. Um, could you explain? Well, it's, it's, it's the formalization of the C source code. So C has a semantics and there's a semantics in, in, in the Isabel solver. So there's a Isabel 
packet that defines the C semantics, and it's able to read the C code and give it meaning according to the to the C semantics. Okay, and, right. And that that's what gets verified. Mm. And of course, the that makes assumption on the semantics of C, and C semantics is actually ambiguous, so you have to restrict yourself to a subset, mm. and then you don't really know whether the compiler gives this this subset the same semantics. So, so they prove it. Yep. So by doing this validation proof against the artifact that's actually this verified version of this of the source code, we take the assumption on semantics out of the um, assumptions for the proof. Right, they, they fall out, and we get the complete proof down to the binary um, without trusting the compiler and without having to assume that our interpretation of the semantics is correct. Yeah. Okay, right. But what exactly does the proof say? Can and, uh, can a system running SEL4 as its kernel, can it ever crash? Can you dereference an null pointer in, in that so system? The, what the proof says is that the code, the binary that's running on the silicon, will always behave according to the formal spec. And the formal spec defines how the kernel reacts under all circumstances. So there's there's no undefined behavior. And so that excludes, for example, any sort of control flow attacks because they would give undefined behavior. Um, so you can't attack the kernel by stack smashing or any of that um, because we proved that there's no undefined behavior. This would be undefined behavior. Of course, we inside somewhere, we actually prove that all pointer accesses are safe. Okay. Um, but it, there is proof there. Um, so. That that's the high level statement of what the proof says is it behaves according to the spec. Implications of that are yes, the kernel will never dereference a null pointer or any uninitialized variable. Um, it won't have buffer overflows. It won't crash. There's a few caveats though. For one, we still haven't verified the boot code, so theoretically there could be bugs there, and um, which is what loads the operating system into memory. No, it's not the bootloader. It's the actual boot up code from SEO4. Oh, so right, SEO4 right. starts up and then it needs to initialize the hardware, set up initial page tables and all that. So that initial step is not verified. So what the proof says is once the system has booted up and it's booted in a safe state, it will always remain in a safe state. Okay, got So it. There's, there's still a pos possible window of fault behavior where if the, something is wrong in the boot process and the kernel boot, boots into an unsafe state, uh, then our proofs basically become meaningless. And we had cases like that in the past. So it's sort of time we finished the initialization proofs, but it's basically boring as batshit. And uh, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> yeah. there's no there's no research in there. So we, we hope that someone will actually want it and put money on the table to do it. But um, mm. other than that, it's a background activity and you usually have better things to do. So that that's one of the assumptions that are in there. And then there is some some things that are modeled at the more abstract level, in particular the MMU. There's been a PhD that shows how to do that properly that hasn't been completely integrated. Um, certain assembler instructions, they're, they're not verified, which is part of the context switch sequence. So there's a few bits that are not proved, so it's not absolute 100%, but um, it's pretty good assurance. Like it's, it's way beyond anything else. So the proof just provides like 100% security once it's booted up, initialized? 
for what it actually proves, it gives you 100% yeah. security, right? But there's assumptions there. Yeah. Um, and of course, that includes that you have the right model of the hardware. And yeah. um, the hardware could be buggy, and we know hardware is buggy. Um, yeah. Or whoever did the formalization of the hardware might have got a misunderstanding. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, this part is actually improving because both ARM and RISC-V now have um, a formal spec as the golden spec. So um, the hardware people have to convince themselves that they adhere to the goal, yeah. to the formal spec. And whereas in the past, the formal spec was sort of retrofitted to the informal spec that's in the reference manual. Yeah. Uh, so that that window at least is gone, and eventually people will people are working on verifying processes, and eventually, hopefully, we have some of those. So another fairly unique attribute of SEL4 is that it has commercial deployments. So it's actually out there running on um, some systems, one of which is uh, this helicopter made by Boeing called an unmanned little bird. Um, so it's, I think, fully autonomous or it doesn't require a pilot. Um, and it actually runs SEL4. Yeah. How did that come about? How did, did Boeing reach out to, was it Nikta at the time or? Yeah, so... Um Boeing had been building this thing. It's a pretty standard, pretty dated helicopter airframe. It's probably 40 years old, and they converted it for autonomous flights, mostly for sort of flying supplies um, for defense um, or exploring remote areas, etc. Um, they can't get certification for flying it without a pilot, so there's always has to be one in there. But it it does operate fully autonomously, and um, the in about when was this when did hackham start uh, about 2014 something like that 15 ish sort of um darpa the u.s uh, defense advanced research and development agency which they have lots of money they do lots of pretty high risk stuff um some of the high impact they were the what funded originally the internet the internet used to be called the ARPANET, which was yeah. the original name of DARPA. Um, so they, they do pretty cool stuff. And they had they have these research programs which run over periods of three, five, whatever years, typically with um, eight-digit budgets. Uh, <laughs> you can do a lot there. Wow. Yes. And so they had just created a program manager there called Kathleen Fisher, who is... Um, program language person with a strong formal methods background, she had proposed this HACAMS program for high assurance cyber military systems, basically attacking, uh, protecting defense systems from cyber attack, particularly okay. these um, uh, cyber physical systems. And she was quite clear, there's still slides you can find on the internet where she talks about this program, pitches it basically. Um, and the, the two motivations were SEL4 and CertiCost, uh, the certifying compiler. So basically, she put those things together and said, we should be doing better. Here's 180 million US dollars. Give us proposals what to do with it. And so we had um, friends of us at a US company called Galois. Um, it's a medium-sized business, but have about 50 people or something like that um, with a very strong functional programming specifically Haskell and formal methods uh, and then 
live mostly from sort of government projects. Hmm. I'm guessing and named after the mathematician. Named Google? after the mathematician, oh. yes. Founded by a guy called John Launchbury. And um, we had had projects with them in the past. And we had actually John Launchbury invited to NICTA as part of our of the review panel for the embedded operating systems program, basically our work. And um, he came out and said, look, there's the Starpa program. Here's the slides. You could have written those. I looked at it. Yes. <laughs> 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 they were basically our story. And so we went, got together and put a team together. They had very good connections to Rockwell Collins, which have a very strong formal methods group. They did some of the early OS verification work and processor verification work. Um, and they brought Boeing in. So they, they had good existing relationships to Boeing and said, look, we're trying to do this. Do you have a project? Yeah, we have this ULB thing. And that's how it came together. Um, and it was a project that ran over four and a half years. Um, Kathleen later told me that everyone in DARPA expected this to be a big flop, but they're prepared to take flops. They're, they're truly risk-taking, right? They, they, they know that a lot of their programs are going to be flops, but they're going to have some spectacular successes. And everyone expected Hackens to be a flop, and it was a spectacular success because basically it was a three-phase program, one and a half years each. And after the second phase, we had already achieved everything we promised for the full um, project, including this you'll be flying on SEO4. So what the technical challenge there was the from in the from the point of view of the avionics that ULB is a pretty dated thing, right? It's got very simple avionics, basically two processors. The one is the flight computer, which keeps the thing stable and flying to um, waypoints. And then the mission computer that talks to the ground station, updates waypoints, sends stuff back, etc. And that's sort of because it's connected to the outside world is the thing that can be attacked. Mm. And the idea was to make that secure from attacks. The original version flew on Linux. DABA, as part of the whole project, had a red team, professional pen testers. They cracked it in like a day or something? A <laughs> couple of weeks. Okay. Oh, okay. They took to completely own that thing, <laughs> which is sort of interesting. I mean, this is supposed to be a defense system. You expect yeah. these to be sort of secure. Um, no, they didn't have a lot of problems <laughs> in cracking it. So um, the, the idea then was, okay, put SEO4 underneath, just put the Linux stuff in some virtual machines for some legacy support and everything critical runs native on Linux, um, which meant extracting it, the critical components, porting that as separate processes um, on SEL4. Er everything native runs on SEL4. Yes. And the legacy stuff on the Linux VM. Yeah, and okay. the legacy stuff was mostly some communication stacks and the camera. Right. Um, so two... two um, virtual machines with Linux for these two legacy components. And so everything else had to be extracted and ported to SEO4 or rewritten. And the cool thing was, this is export controlled. We weren't allowed to touch or even look at the code. So it had to, the Boeing engineers had to do that themselves. Had to port SEL4 to the ULB? No, we, we ported it to a platform. We agreed on a platform. We okay. did the port for the hardware platform, but then they porting the actual control software onto SEO4, they had to do that themselves. Okay. And it was two Boeing engineers who did the job in two, three years. So 
compared to the overall cost of this project, which has been going for years and consumes zillions of dollars, right? Um, that's basically in the noise margin. And in the end, we had a system which the red team failed to compromise. So it, it was mm. a stunning success. And it didn't impact functionality in any way. Pilots said, yeah, it feels completely normal. And uh, um, so that was, that was really what shook up def the defense space. They, they went through this phase and in investing heavily into formal methods in the 90s and then got pissed off by just lack of results by, yeah. by lack of usable results yes um, and it had got a really bad name uh, which is why everyone expected a big flop and then wow this thing actually works and it, it's useful in a real system and that change meant the, the mindset completely and now they have again a adopting SEO 4 for lots of systems but also in general um, investing heavily into formal methods again um, so the the ULB is actually, it's not a product. I mean, they I think they sold one to Korea or something like that, but it's mostly an experimental system. But there are products out there. So, for example, there is a secure communication device in daily use in the at least Australian and UK defense force for at least two years. That's based, built around SEO4, uh, done by Canberra-based Pentan. What sort of product did you say that was? It's a secure communication device. So it's a, okay. it's a USB stick that interface to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and has a encryption suite on it. So you can travel with your laptop and use unclassified network for classified communication. Okay, so it's not just like defense sort of applications that SEL4 is useful for. It has other uh, real world well, there's, uses. There's a um, partner of us, a California-based startup called Ghost, they are doing um, post-sales autonomous driving kit and they are building on SEL4, so it's getting into autonomous cars. Um, I don't know most of the defense projects it's being used. I know it's being used a lot, particularly in the US. Um, um, we, we don't have anything to do with them. It's open source, right? They can do that without our help. Um, many of those I don't I'm glad I don't know about. I have heard <laughs> some rumors, and oh God, <laughs> <laughs> I think a um, nuclear reactor was mentioned. Or <laughs> things I don't want to have anything to do with. Um, so yes, it's 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 in a lot of real world products, and it's getting into more, and including in the civilian space. So one of the issues we had is it's very sort of defense tainted because defense is most paranoid. They have to, yep. they, they also have the money to be more speculative, go after unproved technology. Um, but we are really keen to get it out into civilian space and that's happening as well. So we have this project where we're building a device to protect critical infrastructure. Um, and this is going to be demonstrated in a remote power generation site in the Australian desert this year. Uh, looking very much forward to that and uh, doing the PR around it when it happens. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's a civilian project as well, not just defense. Yeah. Mm. Um, I've got one more question. Then I think it'd be interesting to ask you about AOS and yeah. how, how that all started. Maybe, maybe actually you guys can convince me to do AOS. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just wondering why is it, was it an obvious choice to go with the open source model for SEL4? Were there other considerations? Why is it well suited to open source? So this comes back to what I said earlier. You can't really make money with operating systems. 
Microsoft did it for a while, but mostly they didn't really sell the operating system. They sold the office suite and everything around it, and it, they tied it to Windows. Yeah. Um, and these days they're not making money with Windows anymore, and n no one does. And so my original hunch that you don't make money with operating system was right in the end. So that means, yeah, you should, it should be open source. And I think this is a general principle. Everything that's sort of core infrastructure should be open sourced. There's no, not much benefit from having competing versions, particularly when you have something like as perfect as SEO4. So just make it readily accessible for everyone. Um, there's still, there's of course the problem how to fund that, right? And in the end, these sort of things need to be looked at like roads where basically governments need to invest in keeping these things going as the fundamental infrastructure on which people can then build and innovate on top. Um, so I, I think fundamentally it's the right thing. Um, as a matter of fact, what I consider my biggest professional blunder in my career was when I originally didn't open source SEL4 but thought we could do licensing, etc., and make money out of it. And that was that was a huge mistake that almost cost us dearly, particularly when it then got owned by Channel Dynamics, who didn't really do anything with it. And it was basically rotting away in a drawer. And um, we were I had money lined up from the European government for being basically redoing it from scratch open source. But then my former student, Daniel Potts, who was at GD at the time, convinced the company to, to op let us open source it. And so that's how basically we got SEO4 back and um, got back into a world domination mode with it. Okay, so that was to open source the L4 kernel that Open Kernel Labs made, which was then... They didn't make it. They, they took what we had made and nicked up, but they owned SEO4 as well. Mm. Okay. As part of the original deal. And then when they got bought by General Dynamics, General Dynamics ended up owning SEO4. And that's and when we're sitting in a drawer somewhere. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I had I had it in my hand before the purchase to actually simply open source SEO4 and I would have saved ourselves a lot of pain and frustration and um, um, almost risking the window of opportunity of we being the dominate dominant secure OS. Um, I was very lucky that you had a student at General Dynamics, was that? Well, he was one of the senior people at OK Labs. Okay. And then um, the the other most senior was the um, then VP of engineering, Ben Leslie, who is now running a, two companies, Upcudo and Breakaway. And um, he left OK Labs at the same time as I did, 2010. And then Dan became the VP Engineering. So he was then when OK was bought by General Dynamics, he was the senior guy who was in charge of the group inside uh, General Dynamics. So he was basically known to management there, etc., and had all the connections. And that's how he managed to convince them to do the right thing. So he saved SEL4? He did, yeah. yes. Yeah. We should MVP. be all really grateful to him, and I keep telling him that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so going on in. Back in 1998, you started teaching a course at UNSW on advanced operating systems. Um, and over the years, the course has earned a serious reputation for being uh, both incredibly difficult, but also incredibly rewarding. Um, 
So what's sort of the origin story of AOS? Did UNSW ever offer a course that was exploring advanced topics and operating systems before? Um, no, it, I think it actually started in 97. Um, but this is, yeah, I basically thought we should give students more opportunity to learn about operating systems and obviously as part of sort of attracting generally students to UNSW as this, here's this really unique thing where you can learn more about operating system than just about any other place in the world with the exception of two dozen universities, mostly in the US. Um, and so this was just a time when Kev had finished building his L4 kernel for the MIPS architecture. And so, yeah, we built um, this ad really advanced course around it where students starting with L4, built their own operating system. And um, it's, it, I think it's a cool course. Uh, students who went through it generally think so mm. for a number of reasons. One of them is for most students, this is the biggest piece of software they ever built from scratch. Yeah. So they tend to end up with a, an OS of the order of 5,000 lines of code, which probably in terms of complexity is more like 20,000 lines of normal application code. <laughs> oh, they should end up writing more than they, yeah. Well, it, it, it's much more complex, right? Yeah. There's, there's much more interactions to be aware of, etc. And so to do that from scratch, that's, and then have an operating system where you actually, you can just have an ELF file and load it in and it runs. Mm. And you have an interactive shell and yeah. it behaves like a real operating system. That's incredibly rewarding. Mm. Um, but of course, in the process, you learn so much more about operating system than you would have ever had an opportunity for. You also learn about architecture. Um, more than one student told me in this one class I do about caching, they learned more about architecture than in the architecture <laughs> course. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's a challenge of the, the combination of actually building a really complete artifact mm. that does something actually visible and yeah. useful and learning about low level programming interface really being very close to the hardware and the challenges that um, poses but also the insights you get from doing that yeah. um, and in general really developing strong system skills the these students who gone through AOS they are very sought after in industry um, I had people who just got a pass out of AOS, they got jobs at Google. That's <laughs> very impressive. We, we know how selective yeah. Google is, so yeah. they, they obviously learn. And, and the course has a reputation in industry. Like um, People will recognize, oh, you've done AOS, okay. Mm. <laughs> we know you can program, so. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, that's incredible. And it's, um, we, we used to have a special version of it, um, but for the last, two or three years it's been running off the head revision of the open source SEO4. So yeah, you're really right there. Yeah. And of course, it's an excellent way to get started into the whole world of SEO4 and become a contributor to the SEO4 open um, source ecosystem. That's our plug for the course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so it's, as you said, and, and this is a, a comment I get regularly in the feedback, like, Pretty much every year, at least one student says, I've never worked this hard in uni <laughs> and never had so much fun doing it. So, 
It's also a great way, it seems like, for your research group to recruit engineers. Of course, yeah. Them, well, most that, of them that was, come from AOS. That was always part of the motivation, is to train up students so they become useful in our research projects without a long ramp up time. So, and of course, the whole pipeline is always advanced OS, thesis in OS, mm. and then you're pretty much world-class OS experts. <laughs> so you've got some, you've got some incredible students that have come out of OS. What, yes. what do you think has surprised you the most that came out of a student? I don't know. Um, like some of these students, they were obviously very strong, right? Yeah. If, if, if someone has a, um, a transcript where you have to look for the non HDs, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a very good student. Um, but also, I find this is a really good place for students to excel who are net, not necessarily the top performers in the classical academic measures. I had way more than one student who, whose transcript looked pretty ordinary, um, but who really excelled in AOS. Um, mm -hmm. Some of it is just students, a lot of students, they, they're smart and very capable, but not necessarily very motivated. Um, and sort of, yeah, don't put a lot of energy in the courses and then find something that fires them up. Mm. Uh, in that case, operating systems, and they really excel. And for me as a, as a professor, this is one of my always, I consider this as one of my proudest achievements is to turn a student with an ordinary transcript into a superstar. And I had some of these. Um, like Benno, who's uh, this comp serious company, serial company founder. Um, and there's been a few of your former, either former AOS students or former thesis students to, that have gone out and started companies, quite successful ones. Yeah, um, probably more than I know of, um, but certainly there's, there's probably a dozen, maybe two dozen companies founded by my former students. Some of them are just small, one, two, three people businesses, uh, some are significantly bigger. I presume they pay you royalties for all their successes. Probably nicer. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope that eventually some get rich and sort of contribute back. And that's the standard model in the US. Uh, it's less known, le less common in Australia. But um, I've been approached by one former student who wants to do that. So it would be nice to see more of that. So you've, um, in addition to teaching a lot of students through your AOS course, you've also supervised a lot of students over the years. Um, so we just wanted to ask you, what have you learned from supervising and teaching over you know, the past 20 or even more years? Um, yeah, how, how's that? It sounds like that experience has been quite rewarding for you, um, especially, like you said, taking an ordinary transcript student and you know, creating yeah, a superstar. So um, I, I'm certainly a, a strong believer in students' abilities and um, ability to really outgrow themselves if they find the right challenges. And so uh, uh, I've been saying for many years that for an academic, boring, smart students is a capital offense. You should. You should never under-challenge as a smart student. You should Oh, too, too bore. Me, boring yeah. meaning too bore, not like the students yeah. themselves are boring. No, no, no <laughs> to, to bore them, to, to under-challenge them. Right? Okay, right. Um, so I'm, I'm a strong believer in really challenging students, and AOS is definitely a case in point on that one. But also my thesis projects, they, they tend to be very scalable, right? If, if the students is not that great, then they can still get a decent mark out of it. But if they're really good, 
then they can grow the project mm. uh, into something really awesome. And fair number have done that over the years. And um, every now and then I get a, an actual paper out of an um, undergraduate thesis project where the student has done a really very thorough uh, job and really got themselves totally immersed in it. And I'm sure that would be very rewarding. Yeah. I think most of your um, feedback on AOS has been like overwhelmingly positive. <laughs> so, like, what, what would you what would you advise to like other courses? What do they get right or what do they get wrong? Um, so you c can't do what I did with AOS for just any course, yeah. right? Part of what makes AOS special is it's def it's definitely designed to be selective. Right? We we learned over the years that we can't let anyone one in because they will rather they they will kill themselves they will drop out, drop out. fail I, I don't want that right mm -hmm. I, I want students to have fun in my course I want them work hard and I make them work hard but I want them to have fun yeah. and um, have a good experience so we played around with prerequisites and we settled a number of years back on you need a distinction in OS mm. I'm always open to exceptions um, if someone thinks they have a good reason to they will cope um talk to me talk to kevin and we we're always willing to listen i had one really awesome student where it was a megatronic student aos was the first comp course he did oh <laughs> i can't believe that you <laughs> told me that story that and just he, sounded crazy and he he didn't top it he came second <laughs> that, is that is incredible um and yeah i mean i'm i'm always happy to be flexible but generally i make sure that people don't get in there with the wrong expectation. Mm -hmm. um, just because the course doesn't have many prerequisites doesn't mean you, you get, everyone can take it, right? Yeah. Um, so this is part of, and you can't repeat that in, in most other courses, mm -hmm. um, but it's really sort of doing something that is for students looking for a challenge. It's part of our job as a good university to provide challenges for students who want them. Yeah. And this is part of it, right? So, um, I think obviously we can't make every course so, as challenging, but we should have electives that provide this sort of yeah. um, function. And AOS is really designed around that idea. But we also provide a lot of guidance, right? We don't mm -hmm. just throw the students in at the deep end and let them struggle. We make sure that they get support throughout. We have weekly milestones, so they, they don't have, in the, in the beginning when they see the project, what we expect from them, they probably wouldn't know what, where to start, right? Yeah. So we, we give them a milestone every week to guide them to build a system. And sometimes they, um, the tutor who does the demo sends them back, say, yeah, this sort of works, but it's not going to scale to where you need it. So go back and do this better and gives them mm. an idea of how to improve it. And um, then, if the student has sense, then they follow what the tutor says yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and hel help understand how to build a better system. Mm -hmm. There's also a pretty comprehensive introduction to SEL4 in the first few lectures, just describing the API that you get to work with. Yeah. And it's a steep learning curve uh, for sure. Right? Yeah. I'm guessing it takes a considerable time commitment as well, right? I mean, I'm guessing you yeah. can't do two so others. Mostly because students have to learn how to do it. Yeah. If, if you know how to do it, you can do the project in a week or two. Okay. But, uh, but, <laughs> you really but sense some disagreement. <laughs> yeah, but this this is, uh, a lot of students say at the end, ah, 
now I know how to do it right. And, okay. and it's basically, yeah, okay, you obviously learned something. That's the whole point. That's but, right. Um, yeah, hardly any students manages to do it in two weeks uh, of time, but because they have to learn first, which is the whole point. But the, the course is there to teach students useful things, and they seem to get some out of them. I'm kind of mindful of your time, and I want to I wanna ask uh, some other sort of non-technical questions. Um, so we went through a lot of your blog posts, and it was clear that you have like a, a very wide range of interests, um, technical and non-technical. Uh, some of them, you know, you enjoy camping, scuba diving, cycling, hiking, sailing, traveling, and a lot more. Um, how do you make time to fit all that into your schedule? And, and also, do you think that um, having other interests, especially like non-technical ones like that, do you think that uh, aided your focus in your in your career and your technical work um yeah so first is i i do a lot of these things but i don't do enough of them <laughs> <laughs> i get the moment i can't do very much because i got my leg in the cast um i hope to get past that point in two months and be really agile again um but yeah i go bushwalking a few times a year i really wish i had the time to do more of it and i i'm a workaholic and i admit that um, but also it's just the way holidays vacation works for me like my brain doesn't like to idle <laughs> I can't sit on the beach and in bars for two weeks I would go crazy so my the way for me to turn off is to get really physically active so mm. I do tough bush walks or bike rides etc and um, then that, that's that's the, the right kind of balance and that, that's how I really recover. And I, it's not that I don't think about work stuff, but I only think about the interesting work things. So I, I, I think about technical problems while I'm walking, for example, and um, sometimes I come up with good ideas, uh, but it's sort of optional, right? <laughs> cool, all right. And also, so you've uh, lived in a lot of different countries around the world. How have you coped with, with culture, different cultures, like adapting to different cultures and that sort of thing? Um, you've been in Germany, Switzerland, the U.S., Canada, Australia. What have you? What do you like about Australia, first of all? The weather. The weather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sydney is a great place to live. Uh, it's it's clearly my most favorite city in the world. Over Melbourne. Uh, huh? Just making sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Melbourne is too cold. Yeah, it's, it's uh, crazy there. Um, yeah. No. I really love Sydney. I, re I love the, the fact that it's surrounded by national parks. And yeah. um, you go out in the Blue Mountains, you walk for an hour or two, and you're away from everything. And you can get kill yourself if you're not careful and, and uh, <laughs> because it's, yeah. it's real wilderness. Um, not many places in the world where you have this sort of access, mm. um, the weather, etc. The, the whole food scene. I, I love food and wine. and. Um, Sydney is one of the world's great places for eating. Um, favorite foods? What are your favorite foods? I like sort of everything. I I like classic European food. I eat a lot of Asian food. I like real, real chili. Mm. Um, I'm the guy who adds chili in in Thailand. Oh wow, that's great. <laughs> um, a lot of like uh, the bratwurst sort of German food or not so much? No, I, I eat that when I'm in Germany because okay. I don't really get the decent stuff here. But there's, right. there's other stuff which I really enjoy, which I don't get there. So, um, But to come back to your question, um, I didn't really find it difficult. You, you sort of 
take your time to sort of understand how your environment ticks. Um, I don't think I had particular difficulties getting used to it. Uh, getting used to Australia is probably easier than other countries because we tend to be laid back and um, uh, less less opinionated about how people should behave, I think. Um, even though there's a, there's a bit of a pushback these days where people try to get us back into the 50s. So I hope they fail. <laughs> I, I like the openness of society, the multicultural thing. Um, I when was really great experience when we first came to Sydney, uh, came across King Street with all these um, restaurants, particularly Asian, mm. with all sorts of food. And yeah, I, I really liked it from the beginning. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I think um, one of the things that I think our listeners would be very keen on um, learning would be what would you advise them as in as students says how do how do they manage their time because that's like a thing that's um, always they're always a challenge especially with, if they want to take all these interesting and challenging courses. Yeah. But I don't claim to be an expert on time management. I don't <laughs> think I'm very efficient most of the time myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm a strong believer in doing what really excites you. Yeah. And um, rather than trying to optimize your OM, um, find the courses, the, the areas that really excite you and get really deep into those. This is, you do yourself much more benefit that way. And yeah, find your niche kind of. Yeah. yeah. And that's what AOS is designed for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think we can finish off with some uh, of these more sort of advice focused questions. So um, you've had a very successful career. Uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Did you, were there any mistakes you made along the way that really taught you something? Um, yeah, I, I get asked this question a lot because I am a mentor to a number of junior academics. And so what I think in hindsight, I really did right is sort of build up a vision and sort of take a long-term view of where you want to get. And it, it takes a bit of patience. And these days there's in academic environment, there's much more bean counting than there used to be when I was young. And so it's, it's more challenging in a way to take a long-term view um, because people want metrics, paper counts and crap like that, which mm. I think is really detrimental. Um, but yeah, sort of find find something you really believe in. And this is not, I should, I can't say everyone should try to do things that matter in the real world, right? If you did that, then you wouldn't have a lot of mathematics, which yeah. only becomes useful 200 years later. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a yeah. bit too long of a horizon. So this is not a general advice for everyone. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that really worked well for me. Yeah. I wanted to do things that make a difference in the real world. And in engineering, I think most of engineering should re be really that way, right? Yeah. Some of it is sort of short-term applied, but um, the sort of interesting, deep things that create real impact are those which, which are more fundamental problems which you need a longer time to attack and be strategic about that and uh, develop, have a vision, develop a strategy on how you get there mm -hmm. and um, understand what is, what is needed, et cetera. So this is something I learned 
fairly early and I think it was a really important lesson to learn and I, that's what I'm trying to tell people who come to me f for advice and in a similar thing for students it's sort of the same thing right what do you want to do with your life do you want to just get best marks and then end up in some job that may pay well like shifting other people's money around with no benefit to society sorry for the biased view here um, or do you want to do something that really helps people in the real world yeah. and as engineers I think we have a really great opportunity for doing this right? and um, I, I think I always like when students sort of have this attitude of working on things that are going to make a difference for people's lives. Yeah. You've said before it's it breaks your heart when students, some of your smartest students, go to work for some of the trading companies and just shift other people's money around. Um, it, it does, yes. Yeah. Because I, I don't think they I think they have a negative contribution to society and um, I want to make a positive contribution to society. And I think a lot of young people really want that too. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can yeah. only encourage them. Cool. What about, are there any books that you've read that have had a, a very big impact on you? And we can let you think about that for a sec. We've got a few others related. Um. No, I, I read a lot of science books as a kid. <laughs> I think that, that definitely had a lot of impact on me. To the, um, Sci-fi, any science fiction? That too, but the, the, actually popular science books. Okay. Hmm. Um, learned about physics and how things work that, that definitely had the biggest impact on me in terms of I reading. hear the Richard Feynman books are pretty good for example yes yeah yep. I have tried one of them <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was a awesome yeah. writer yeah yeah and also a great very charismatic lecturer a lot of his lectures are public yeah yeah Feynman's lectures um, and who have been your your mentors or heroes like throughout your career it sounds like Liebke might have been one of them. Yes, mm. jo Jochen definitely was one. And um, as I said, he passed away too, way too early. Um, he was a great guy. I learned a lot from him. I really learned operating system from my students and from Jochen. <laughs> 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 um, I have my heroes, of course. And Your heroes? Yeah, I mean, sort of people... Inspired you. Originally, they were mostly in physics, like mm. people like... Einstein, Heisenberg, Feynman, etc. Um, but people like in two weeks giving a talk, um, Butler Lampson, Turing Laureate, he just, you look at anything in the 70s and it's in computer science, certainly sort of vaguely related to systems, there's not much he hadn't has his fingers in. Oh, wow, <laughs> mm. Butler Lampson. Um, incredibly influential, yeah. People like him, yeah. Um, maybe we can finish off with this one. Um, so can you think of a time in your career where you, you made a mistake or you experienced a failure, um, but it actually turned out to benefit you in the long term? Ooh, okay. So at the time, it, it you know, maybe it was upsetting or frustrating, but uh, with hindsight, it was beneficial. So not open sourcing SEO4 from the beginning was definitely yeah. a big okay, blunder. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, not necessarily that it benefited me, but did uh, the lesson benefited me, I think, sort of, um, yes, my original 
gut feeling was right and uh, I should have trusted it more. <laughs> oh, right. Um, and we avoided disaster, fortunately, in that case. Um, it could have undone a lot of things. Um, when I was in the company, I, because I was, part of being successful as an academic is you, you develop a pretty good intuition and you know when to trust your intuition. Yeah. There was in a completely different environment, which really where I didn't have a lot of experience with or none. And I didn't trust my intuition because there was nothing which justified trusting it. And um, in hindsight, I should have trusted it much more <laughs> because <laughs> there were things which I thought were wrong, um, where I should have acted earlier, including some of the not the, some of the pretty unethical behavior of the CEO which um, I, sh I should have just stood up against it earlier. And some of um, my people there at the company, former students, they really despise me for that. And um, I can sort of see where they're coming from. Um, I, sh I mean, I had nowhere near as much control as they thought I had, but I should have tried harder. And uh, so uh, to, to me, the, the, the big the main takeaway there, if you think something is wrong, then you need to act. Interesting. Okay, well, I'll check out and I'll encourage our audience. We can look at the blog posts for the yeah. juicy details of that. Um, unless you want to go into it now, but I feel like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> check the blog posts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I guess it comes yeah. something with experience, right? Like, it's hard to trust yourself when you haven't proved to yourself that yeah, when, you can when, be trusted. When the context is not the one where, where yeah. this trust has been developed. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much, Gernot, for yeah. taking the time to talk to us today. We know you've got an extremely busy schedule. Yeah. Um, it's a great pleasure. And so you can, you know, encourage uh, your advanced operating systems course is running in T2 of yep. this year. Yes. Uh, enrollments are open and it's, is it going to be in person or online? Or is that it's going it? to be in person. Okay. Um, and we right. do a new recordings. Um, the education team is actually going to send out students to record and so we do new recordings which we're I'm planning to put up on YouTube um, so which means I need to rethink some of the contents a bit more mm. but yeah um, be good to see some committed students there who really don't mind working their ass off <laughs> or having some fun and in general I'm fairly approachable if some if a student has questions wants to talk to me please send me email um, yeah happy to I, I really strongly believe in the power of students um, and this is definitely one of the takeaways from my careers I achieved a lot by motivating students to excel in many cases over their own expectations and I'm very I, I'm always happy when something like that happens so I'm, I'm always keen on working with students who are truly interested dedicated um, want to do cool stuff Cool. And in addition right. to the AOS course, you also, your research group takes on um, a lot of honors students and taste of research, yep. scholarship students. Um, I think that happens every term. You've got a lot of different projects. I think you, you said uh, you'll always find a project for a student that's keen enough to, to get stuck into operating systems. Absolutely. Um, I, my topic list is actually a bit stale and needs updating. It's actually put, need to put that on my to-do list. It's sort of urgent. <laughs> But you're quite right. If someone has a good idea um, and I think they have the background to it, I'm, I'm very open. 
um, generally in in my space of course it's got to be operating systems and ideally SEO 4 but that's not 100% given um, as long as it's technically interesting yes uh, including applying things right um, for example if someone wants to do some systems work on SunSwift for example I'm, I've done that in the past and I'm very very open to these sort of things with pretty good results too with SunSwift right? yeah, yeah. Um, cool, and you're also on Twitter, you've got your blog, Microkernel Dude. Um, so yeah, if people want to learn more about Gunnar, you should be able to find out online very easily. Thanks cool. so much. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Right. <laughs>